welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, please check out our merch store at beyondblathers.square.site and take a look at the animal stickers and postcards we have for sale. Okay, so last week we talked about the ammonite, which is an extinct squid-like creature. But this week we're following up that episode by looking at the nautilus, a relative of the ammonite that's still alive today. So if you bring a nautilus to Blathers, he'll say, The chambered nautilus is perhaps best known for its gorgeous shell. Not only does this shell's interior shine with a pearly luster, it features a near-perfect natural spiral. But those aren't the chambered nautilus's only bragging rights. This cephalopod can have up to 90 tentacles, it's said. These arms come coated with a sticky substance that helps the nautilus capture its prey, which is far better than using them for overly long hugs, I say. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> I. This is one of those moments where I'm just like, I don't know, I feel like weirdly proud of Blathers. Like, I'm just like, that's such a concise summary of what the Nautilus is. Like, I don't know, I never I never read the summaries before we record the episode, and I'm always pleasantly surprised, particularly with this one. Like, even use the word cephalopod. I don't yeah. think that's, like, a really common word. Anyway, um, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to get on with the Nautilus, uh, so... The, the nautilus is often also called the chambered nautilus. That's why Blathers referred to it as such. So to give a quick overview of appearance so that, you know, our listeners have an idea of what this thing looks like. Basically imagine like if an octopus got stuck inside a snail shell with like all its tentacles sticking out the front. These animals have a mostly white shell with orange and kind of reddish stripes and patterns on the upper part of the shell kind of tapering off at the bottom. And these stripes can vary depending on the individual, and scientists can even identify the individual nautilus based on the stripes it has. So that's kind of a fun little fingerprint it's got. They also have relatively large eyes on the side of their heads, and to me they look a little bit like like frosted mini donuts. They've got like these little pinhole eyes. Um, <laughs> and their eyesight is not that great, um, but they do have an amazing sense of smell, which we'll talk a little bit about later. Now, there's six species of living nautilus today, but they all look pretty much like that. The largest species, Nautilus pompilius, can get up to 10 inches, but other species usually don't get larger than 8 inches. Uh, And when they start out, they're really teeny, like, miniature versions, and they're super cute. So I highly recommend Googling that. Wow. So, I mean, something that really stood out to me from what Blathers said was that they can have up to 90 tentacles, which seems so much more than other octopus or squids, right? Yes. Um, So yeah, they are cephalopod, which is the group of animals that includes octopus, squid, cuttlefish, and of course, nautilus. So those are the four living groups of cephalopods. And octopus, squid, and cuttlefish are not actually that closely related to the nautilus. Uh, In fact, ammonites, which are an extinct group of cephalopods that we talked about last week, are actually more closely related to those three groups than to the nautilus, despite the fact that ammonites, too, have a shell. So nautilus are kind of in their own (laughs) taxonomic group, way off there. Yeah, despite all that. 
And it, this probably makes more sense if you consider the fact that many millions of years ago, when cephalopods were in the early stages of their evolution, they all had shells. These shells were what we think helped these early cephalopods float up into the water column, rather than being stuck on the seafloor with the rest of their mollusk cousins. I also wanted to mention on the topic of other cephalopods that there's a creature called the Argonaut or the Paper Nautilus. This is not an actual nautilus, but it's actually an octopus. And I I never heard of this thing in my life prior to researching for this episode. But yeah, go, go and Google it. It is a weird looking thing. Apparently the female Argonauts are able to create this like thin calcite shell to house herself and her eggs. But unlike the Nautilus, she's not like locked into the shell. So the Nautilus remains the only cephalopod with a true shell. Oh, I love the name Paper Nautilus. Like that's really, really cute. Even the name like Argonaut, like yeah. that the, the Greek mythology of that. It's just a very glamorous sounding creature. And it's it's really weird, like Googling pictures of it it's like really difficult to understand where the octopus begins and like the shell begins. It's a really weird looking animal. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't know what it ex- like. I didn't know it existed until now. And now I want to do an episode on whatever the heck this weird animal is. Oh, it's so pretty. But yeah, it looks like if a fish was a shell, like it looks like half shell, half it looks like Fish a face. cheap <laughs> costume of a Nautilus that like yeah. an octopus is trying to put on. <laughs> I don't know. Is that a weird? Uh, yeah, it's it's just bizarre. And and the shell is very thin. Like it's a little bit see through, so it makes sense. It would be called a paper Nautilus. Wow. Yeah. This really is just like a whole group of animals that I did not know about. Yeah. Super bizarre. So anyway, we'll add that to the list of strange creatures of the sea. Yeah. But yeah, before we talk more about the Nautilus shell, I did want to talk about some of the other differences that exist between other cephalopods and the Nautilus. And you mentioned their arms, but there's others. For one, they're long-lived, with some getting up to like over 20 years old. And compare this with like other cephalopods, they only live, you know, one to two years. And I find that interesting because, you know, other cephalopods, they can get so large and often very intelligent, and yet they have like a very short life. But yeah, not the Nautilus, up to 20 years old. And it takes 10 to 15 years to mature, which we'll talk a little bit more about later because that is pretty significant in terms of their life history. Wow, yeah, I'm so surprised to hear that octopi only live one to two years. Like, yes. <laughs> I thought of them as, I don't know, like growing up and having personalities and yeah, being intelligent and... I mean, obviously, like, they're still intelligent, but I can't imagine that they would die after, like, one year. It actually is so sad. <laughs> like, if, if you're one of those people who, like, has watched documentaries on octopi or octopuses or, like, I read that book Soul of an Octopus uh, by Cy Montgomery, and it was, like, quite sad because she'd, like, get to know these octopus and they'd have these, like, very fiery personalities and then they'd die so quickly and it, it was just really sad. <laughs> I don't know. So Yeah, that is sad. Yeah, I mean, I recommend that people learn more about octopuses in their free time because it's really just a charming world. And cephalopods in general are just fascinating. But 
I digress. <laughs> um, other cephalopods also produce a lot of young. Again, like thinking of the female octopus who's going to like lay hundreds of eggs in a cave and carefully tend to her babies as long as she can before she dies. In the case of Nautilus, they'll really only have like, they'll lay one egg basically at a time. And sometimes they'll have like a very small brood, maybe like two or three eggs. But we don't know a lot about their reproduction, but yeah, as far as we can tell, very, very small reproductive numbers. And of course, we talked before about their arms. They have way more arms than other cephalopods. So octopus and squid have eight arms and two tentacles. Nautilus can have over 90 tentacles, which if you look at a picture of them, it looks kind of impossible. Like it does not look like they have 90, but apparently they do. And these arms don't have suction cups like other cephalopods. So if you think of like an octopus, they have those like nice little suction cups all along their arm. Instead, the Nautilus have like tiny ridges kind of covered in this sticky substance. And that's what gives them really good grip to grab their prey. It's also important to mention that their tentacles, they don't look like tentacles in the way that octopus or squid's tentacles do. Like they're not super long and waving all over the place. They have... At the end of their arms, they have this like hard sheath and that sheath has a thin appendage that kind of looks like a ribbon that can extend out. And it basically gives their arms reach, but it allows them to shrink those arms back in when necessary. So some people compare it to like a cat's retractable claw. But for me, it reminds me a bit of like a toy lightsaber, like, you know, the ones with the tubes that collapse into each other and then you like flick them out. And the lightsaber (laughs) extends. It's like that, but the lightsaber is like floppy and can wrap around stuff. (laughs) So that's my analogy for a Nautilus arm. Yeah, imagine that sort of thing. And they'll use these tentacles to scavenge through sand, to find food, and also to help attach themselves to reef surfaces when they need to rest. I mean, why do they need so many arms? Is it just because they are pretty small? And That's a good question. I'm not really sure. I would think... It probably has to do with that. Like it just, oh, one thing I did read is apparently they're very like good sensory organs too. So maybe, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe it like helps them understand better where they are. That would be my theory. And if they're sticky and they're using them to like attach to things and stuff, yeah, maybe eight wouldn't be enough. But it just, it seems like an excessive number of arms. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think of them like anemones. Like anemones also have right, a ridiculous yeah. number of arms. So yeah, I, I'm not sure. I guess it just worked out that they could just keep adding arms and there was no evolutionary disadvantage to that. It's just like, it's so interesting that they they have these key differences from other cephalopods that really make them more almost like mammalian or something where they're they're living longer and they're raising fewer young yeah yeah it's interesting you say that because they're definitely like a k-selected species which is like a biology term that basically means you know they have longer reproductive times longer maturity rates there's just like less of them in general and yeah that they live longer and that is a very common evolutionary strategy opposite of that are the r-selected species that just sort of have <laughs> babies everywhere and live in live fast, die young kind of animals, <laughs> as I call them. But yeah, that's something I was going to talk about a bit later, too, because it plays into their conservation status. But before that, I do want to talk more about the shell. So 
Obviously, they have a shell that's pretty different from other cephalopods. And we know from last episode that ammonoids also had shells that likely looked very similar to the nautilus. So that shell, much like the ammonite shell, is broken up into chambers. So as the nautilus grows, more chambers are added onto that body. And most of its bodily organs are on the outer chamber of their shell. And they have like a long tube attaching into the rest of the shell. And that is used to help control the buoyancy that they get in their shell. And is it like ammonites and that they can't retract into the shell? So a nautilus can actually hide itself in its shell. And it does that by blocking the opening with this like, it's kind of like a little hat on top of its head. (laughs) And it's made by specialized tentacles and it'll just sort of shut itself in. It's a pretty like efficient looking system. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, if you have the shell, I feel like you should be able to retract into it and hide in it. Yeah, I agree. I'm always surprised that, like, a lot of turtles and tortoises have a really hard time fully, like, fitting (laughs) into their own shells. I'm like, why? (laughs) Why Why don't you just, like, you know, have a little, like, rock form around you? Well, I also was wondering, I know sometimes people call Nautilus a living fossil and could you talk more about that and what that means so the ancestors of shelled cephalopods probably date back to like 450 million years ago really really long time ago and since that time nautilus ancestors probably looked very very similar to what we see today we can tell that based on fossils we found of ancestor nautilus that look virtually identical and the term living fossil refers to animals who have remained relatively unchanged throughout evolutionary history so in the case of nautilus they've survived like five mass extinctions which is very impressive because I don't know. Looking at an a-, a nautilus, my money would not be on them for surviving five mass <laughs> extinctions, but apparently they did. It is important to note, though, that you know it's not the the term "living fossil" doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't like evolved or changed at all. And so I I do like to make that point because sometimes it's like a controversial term um, right. <laughs> that you, you you know yeah they look super old, but they are still modern organisms. Yeah, that is really cool. I mean, I feel like the last couple episodes, like we talked about the Archelon and then we talked about ammonites and just like these things that kind of lived up to a certain point and then they were wiped out. So to have this Nautilus that was around then, but is also still around today and is really similar to how it was back then, it's just such an interesting like link to that time, I guess. Yeah, what sort of made it through and what didn't and... It's cool to have things live today that give us a good idea of what the world may have looked like back then. And they're always weird. I don't know. I always feel like the (laughs) things that like alligators and sharks, I'm like, those are some pretty weird animals. Like the the prehistoric age must have been a a wacky time. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's really cool that obviously we can find them today. Um, But where are they found? Like, I... I assume that I can't find them here in Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) No, and reading about where they're found was kind of like, I feel like the scientists studying this are playing Where's Waldo with them because (laughs) they're kind of rare. Uh, They're found throughout the Indo-Pacific Ocean, so including areas around like the Philippines and Australia, but especially around like Indonesia and all those sort of tropical islands around there. And they seem to be relatively close to the land. So they 
they kind of stay out of those open ocean areas. They tend to live in reefs and can be found in shallow waters all the way down to 500 meters below the, the ocean surface. But if they go too deep, so like 600, 800 meters below the ocean surface, their shells will actually implode. So yeah, they're, they're not made for like super, super deep waters, but in general, they do tend to stay in darker waters and migrate up closer to the ocean surface at night. I mean, their shells are only made out of calcium carbonate, so that's the same material as seashells on the beach, snail shells, as well as pearls and eggshells. So, um, you know, we don't really think of eggshells as the strongest materials in the world, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I have no doubt that nautilus shells are significantly stronger than those. But yeah, it is just calcium carbonate. They also have really specific habitat preferences. So... They can't live in waters that are warmer than 25 degrees Celsius. If they encounter really shallow warm water, this often presents a barrier that they won't cross. That being said, they have been seen in pretty shallow waters at night where the water is a bit cooler. And apparently they're also really picky about substrates and they like to live in areas with sandy or silty ground. Wow, yeah, that does seem really specific. It's funny because I've been playing a lot of stardew valley this weekend and uh i found a nautilus shell on my on my farm (laughs) so um i yeah i was like okay confirmed stardew valley is in the indo-pacific ocean but anyway i yeah it was really cute it was like a nice little that is cute surprise i think it only sold for like 150 g's though i was like Excuse me? This is a Nautilus shell. You sold a Nautilus... It's because it's illegal, Sophia, depending on where you are. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get into that. I couldn't do anything with it. I don't know. <laughs> capitalist of you. Yeah. You gotta do what you gotta do for your farm. <laughs> your subsistence farmer. Yeah, I need to buy gifts so that people will romance me. <laughs> I've never played Stardew Valley, but this is really illuminating my view of it. Oh, you would like it. Oh, I'm sure I would. (laughs) It's very Animal Crossing, but like more intense, I guess. But yeah. I feel like I don't need another video game distracting me from (laughs) schoolwork. Yeah. As adorable as it sounds. I've been playing way too much. Like, I think I'm going to ban it tomorrow so that I, I don't know, just like read or something instead, but... Anyway, <laughs> just live your best life. It's a pandemic. You should enjoy your video games. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> it's a very it's responsible use of your time. I was wondering, like, I know with the Ammonites, we talked about how they kind of swam with the shell, like, hanging up like a hot air balloon. Is that how Nautilus swim through the water as well? Yeah, and I mean, that's... It's pretty much exactly the same. And even though we don't know a lot about ammonites, sort of soft tissues, uh, we, from what I could tell about my readings about ammonites, they seem to think that they swam in a very similar way to nautilus. Nautilus, they have like a tube-like structure called a siphon near their head. And it looks a lot like the same thing you'll see on like an octopus. It's like that tube bit 
I don't know how else to describe it, but basically they'll fill up areas within their shell and body with seawater and the siphon can push that water out and propel them in whichever direction they want to go. And it's really cute when you watch them swim because their heads just sort of like bob up and down kind of like a chicken. Like it's it's the weirdest way of <laughs> swimming. I, I don't know how it works as well as you know, it would have to work for them to survive so many mass extinctions. But it's also really interesting because they can control their buoyancy by adjusting the amount of air pressure in their shell cavities. And that's through that tube that I was talking about before, that tube that connects their main body to the rest of their shell. So a lot of really weird processes going on there, including, I don't know if I should talk about this one too much because quite frankly I didn't get it Um, but they're able to basically control the amount of salt in their bodies in such a way that osmosis also helps them have some buoyancy and some control about where they are in the water column I know that sounds super vague but it was deeply confusing uh, for me (laughs) and I was really tired so wow so what do nautilus eat is it also similar to ammonites Yeah, so they are considered to be opportunistic predators, but also scavengers. So I read somewhere they'd eat like the molts from lobsters or crabs, as well as like small crabs and kind of like any small fish that came by, sort of whatever they can easily eat. (laughs) They don't seem to be like the most active predators ever, but they do have some pretty sticky tentacles that help them out when they're trying to hunt. And they have a really good sense of smell, so they're able to navigate and find food using that sense. Hmm. And are they similar to octopus in terms of intelligence? Like, can they unscrew themselves out of a jar and escape from their tanks and stuff like that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it seems like, like other cephalopods, they have pretty well-developed brains and they are capable of learning. So I was reading up on some research by Dr. Jennifer Basil, who is a Nautilus expert, and she did an experiment with these creatures to test how they remembered things. So I mentioned before that Nautilus tend to have pretty poor vision, but Dr. Basil hypothesized that they might be able to detect blue light given that many animals in the ocean biofluoresce and decomposing organisms are often covered in blue biofluorescing bacteria. And so that might be attractive to a nautilus that is scavenging for decomposing organisms. So they wanted to see if they flashed a blue light at the nautilus and then released the smell of food like, I don't know, a fish or something. They wanted to see whether, if they flashed the blue light later on without the smell of food, whether the Nautilus would remember to react as though there was food coming. So for a Nautilus that basically looks like sticking out its tentacles and just kind of going, (laughs) like its tentacles just sort of (laughs) go all over the place. And they found that up to an hour, the Nautilus would do that reaction by sticking its tentacles out and feeling around whenever they saw that blue light. But after an hour, they wouldn't react. And the researchers realized that this is likely when they're consolidating the memory. So putting that memory into their brains for future use. And that if they flash that blue light six hours later, the Nautilus would start reacting to the blue light again, which I think is so interesting because it means that not only is the Nautilus learning, it's having to process that information and kind of lock it down. Yeah, that is like peak brains are complicated and 
weird like that just kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies for some reason like (laughs) i don't know we are all computers and we're loading the information (laughs) i i don't know like maybe i am not um i don't know a lot about the human body (laughs) just putting that out there but uh i feel like i've read somewhere that like sleep is a a big part of sleep is consolidating our memories and so it makes me think like are they like having a little brain nap for six hours or for five hours and like letting all that information kind of sink in. I'm really curious about that. Yeah, that's a good point. Wow. Like, I, don't, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know a lot about the human body. So maybe that isn't even a thing. I just feel like I've read some sort of article about that. That's a cool experiment. I like that. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I was like, this is a scientist I would like to talk to. This sounds like a fun <laughs> project. Well... I was wondering, like, I always find it interesting with things that are so well protected, like the Nautilus or snails or turtles or whatever, like, do they have predators and what kind and like, why are they, why are they so like locked down? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, lots of stuff will eat them, some large fish, sharks, and also octopus. So octopus are known for being able to grab a hold of a Nautilus and actually like, bore a hole into the shell to get to their soft body, which sounds really unpleasant, quite <laughs> frankly. But uh, yeah, so lots of stuff will eat them. And like I said before, Nautilus, when they're threatened, they're going to sort of like tuck their bodies in and cover the hole or entrance to their shell with this like fleshy little trap door. So, I mean, they're, they're somewhat well protected, I guess. But uh, of course, there's always something in the ocean that there's always a bigger fish. Yeah, I mean... Oh, I really wouldn't want to have like sharks and octopi after me. That's just, that's a lot. It's a treacherous world. Yeah. So you kind of hinted that there's conservation issues with the Nautilus. And yeah, it, it sounds like they might be kind of particularly vulnerable. Can you talk about, a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, they're at risk of a whole swath of issues and maybe... Maybe I feel this way because I read a whole report on trafficking of Nautilus and I, I was overwhelmed. I was like, these poor things, there's there's just so much going on. So I'll try and break some of the issues down. Um, and, and they are kind of interesting. So uh, for one, pollution and sedimentation. So sedimentation is when you get like lots of dirts and sediments getting into the water. And that'll affect cephalopods quite a bit because they have a lot of open pores to the water where pollutants and toxins can easily get in. Kind of makes sense if you look at them. It, they look very like squishy, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and so, yeah, that can that can really affect them. And there's also quite a bit of overharvesting, um, overfishing happening in the regions where the Nautilus live. So oftentimes this fishing isn't necessarily for the Nautilus, although that happens too, but I'll talk about that later. Some of the, the fishing effects on Nautilus come from fishing for or, or trying to meet the aquarium demand for live reef and various fish that are found in the reef. So mm. they're, I mean, obviously digging up chunks of reef is going to remove their habitat. That's not going to be great for them. As well as the fishing itself, they can be caught up in bycatch. And in many habitats where they live, 
Apparently, some fishers will use this technique called cyanide fishing, which I'd never heard of before. But apparently it's used to collect aquarium fish in some places around the world. So basically what happens is cyanide is sprayed on a target area to stun the fish they want to collect. And this technique has been used since the 60s and can have really harmful effects on non-target organisms, including the reefs, which makes sense because it is cyanide. (laughs) So... Wow. Yeah, I had no idea this was a thing. Yeah, I feel like when we talk about aquarium conservation issues, it's always with cetaceans, like marine mammals, like, you know, orcas and belugas and dolphins and stuff. But but it's usually like, oh, but having fish and stuff is fine. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Like, and it sounds like from at least what I've read that... Most of the problem is like private aquariums and like aquariums in people's houses and in hotels and like all those kinds of aquariums. Um, So that's when I say like aquarium trade, I think that's sort of the larger part of it because there aren't enough, you know, just like zoo aquariums around the world for that to be. Well, actually, that's probably a presumptuous thing to say, but I I would think (laughs) that there's not enough like public aquariums in the world for it to be a massive problem but it's yeah all these aquariums in people's houses and in rich people's houses and um (laughs) non-rich people who are just like really pumped about having fish in their house Uh, not not to say that I'm sure there's people who have private aquariums who are doing so responsibly but this is a trade and there are people out there who are buying into it so knowingly or not anyway Sorry, that was another tangent. Uh, no, I think it's like, but, it's definitely relevant though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So anyway, cyanide fishing, not great. Another issue related to pollution is bioaccumulation in cephalopods. So for those who don't know what bioaccumulation is, it's when something at a lower end of a food chain eats or ingests or somehow gets toxins into its body and as it is eaten and as those toxins go up the food chain, they basically become more prevalent in the predator's body. So for something like a nautilus, which is a predator or a scavenger, that can be a really big problem for it. It ends up having a pretty high level of toxicity in its body. So that's another problem. And lastly, nautilus are also traded for their shells. So their shells are really beautiful. And like Sophia said, you know, even in Stardew Valley, you can sell them. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so they've got a a lining on the shells that's like a really pretty pearl sheen. And the harvest for trade seems to be most active in the Philippines and Indonesia, according to cities um, and the WWF. If you don't know what cities or CITES is, it's the International Organization for the Trade of Endangered Species. So they regulate that. They're a pretty big organization against exploitative trade. So sales seem to be most active in the US and Europe. And shells can also be sold to tourists pretty often, even in places where it's illegal. So I was reading about it and it seems like, yeah, it's not super hard to get a Nautilus shell, unfortunately. And to give you an idea of the number of products we're talking about here, I found this statistic on the city's proposal for protecting the Nautilus. So more than 900,000 chambered Nautilus commodities were traded internationally with the United States 
between 2005 and 2014. And I don't know, that just seems like a massive number to me for an animal that's probably not that well known. And I'm pretty sure I've never seen a piece of Nautilus jewelry or decorative art. So it's, I mean, maybe, maybe in the grand scheme of things, it isn't a massive number, but you know, Nautilus are pretty rare. Like I just, that, that to me seems like a really large number. So I figured I'd share that. The other thing is like, we don't know how many Nautilus are out there. They're really hard to count. They're pretty rare. They're living in very isolated areas, but we're pretty sure that their populations are declining and they have been designated as a city's appendix two animal. So that means that they receive certain international protections to limit their trade. So (laughs) if anyone, I don't know, is traveling, hopefully nowhere soon. Um, But in the future, always keep in mind that even if it's just a shell, maybe, maybe don't buy it. (laughs) Like maybe make sure that it's been responsibly harvested and it's not like an at-risk species. I always like to talk about that because I I think it's so easy to forget that like shells are also part of an ecosystem. Even like the shells on a beach provide minerals and nutrients to the ocean when they go back in and break down. So just, just leave, leave the nature where it is. That's a really good point. I, I repent for my selling the Nautilus shell. I now know not to do that in the future. Stardew Valley promoting I'm like an the illegal trade of <laughs> legal <laughs> organisms. Uh, I mean, wow. I guess it's not technically illegal in some places. So in Stardew Valley, it could be perfectly legal. No city's yeah. restrictions there. Uh, so did you say like are they classified as endangered or they just like don't know yet? Or okay, I googled this and uh, IUCN seem to not think that Nautilus was a species. So, <laughs> like, it's just straight up not here. Nautilus conservation status. Yeah, it seemed, it just says not extinct. Oh, <laughs> what well, does that that's even good. Mean? <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've ever seen that as a real conservation status. That's just what Google tells me when I first uh, <laughs> Google it. Okay, apparently they have been put on, like, the Endangered Species Act in the U.S., yeah, you know, it seemed pretty unclear. I I would say that it's probably a threatened species. I think that's probably safe to say. But yeah, at least. It doesn't look yeah. like it has any, like, really specific international designations or anything yet. Well, I'm also just wondering in terms of, like, overfishing and overharvesting, what makes, I don't know, what makes that such an issue for Nautilus? Because I know, obviously, like, it affects so many different species. But is there something that makes them more vulnerable Yeah, I mean, this is the whole question of like rarity and uh, vulnerability. And I guess in the case of the Nautilus, what I was reading was it seems to be a lot related to their life history. So we talked before about how, you know, they don't have a lot of eggs at a time. It takes a long time for them to mature. Like if you think of an animal like a rat, for example, rats breed really quickly. They're constantly producing more rats and they can produce multiple rats at the same time. And it doesn't take long for them to become adult rats and like breed again. And they can live in pretty much any habitat. And so they just aren't that restricted. But on the other hand, you have animals like the chambered nautilus, which takes 10 to 15 years to mature and begin producing eggs. They only lay maybe one egg at a time, and they have to incubate those eggs for a year. 
they also have really specific habitat needs. So they're like Goldilocks. They don't want water that's too deep or too warm. It has to be just right. And because of these habitat needs, they don't like to swim across deep water areas of the ocean, which means that their populations are geographically isolated from each other by that deep ocean. So if one of these populations disappears for whatever reason, it's going to be a lot harder for nautilus from other places to come in and repopulate that area. So they're really going to be dependent on random events like storms to blow those nautilus off course and into those regions they would have avoided swimming into otherwise. So when you have threats to their population, it's going to take a long time for them to recover. It's also tricky because researchers don't find a lot of nautilus eggs or young nautilus. They're really hard to track down. So we don't know, you know, are there enough babies to repopulate this population? We don't know. I guess I shouldn't call them babies. Maybe juveniles is the proper (laughs) scientific term, but whatever. So it just kind of all these cumulative effects make them, yeah, a, a tricky species. And uh, one we're probably a little bit worried about. Wow. And are scientists doing anything to try to help save the population? Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of research right now and trying to limit the wildlife trade, which is great. A lot of those issues were problems that a lot of species have in the ocean, overfishing, that sort of thing. Uh, unfortunately, captive breeding doesn't seem to work either. Because while captive breeding attempts have been made, they rarely live to maturity, which makes captive breeding difficult and essentially impossible, given what we currently know about them. So that's kind of unfortunate that they can't try that. So yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I was reading, though, to sort of end on a positive note about an expedition that was trying to find wild nautilus and learn about their eggs in particular, because very little is known about that. And I found this like adorable little factoid that I wanted to share. Um, this is from National Geographic's Field Notes website, uh, Search for the Nautilus Egg. And I'm just going to read it because I just thought it was really wholesome. When releasing nautiluses, it is critical to burp them and make sure there are no trapped air bubbles in their mantle cavity. The air bubbles may get there when being measured and weighed out of the water. If the bubbles are not removed, the nautiluses are positively buoyant and will not be able to jet back down into their homes. To do this, we gently roll them underwater so that their tentacles are facing up, and this allows any bubbles to escape out of the hyponerm. That's a word I don't know. Hyponome. (laughs) Um, Once they are neutrally buoyant and no other air bubbles come out, a quick free dive down a ways and then off they go. We know this method works because we have recaptured ones we've caught in other areas and we have also placed transmitters on others that we follow around on other trips. So I just thought that was cute. I like the idea of having to burp a nautilus. It's like a little baby. Um, (laughs) Yeah, like flipping them around in the water. (laughs) Just That's making sweet. sure they're okay. And I, I don't know, I just like to include that because it's it's nice to hear sometimes about field expeditions and like the little things you learn about animals when you're working in the field. So I thought that was cute. Yeah, and that there are scientists that are devoted to helping them and learning more about them. Like I think that's always something that makes me feel better when I feel down about conservation issues like with the whales and stuff when I get to talk to those researchers who devote their whole lives to that species and those individuals it's it just makes you feel better (laughs) yeah I guess that's one of those things that I mean being surrounded by like environmental science students like it can be really depressing but then 
yeah, I mean, everyone like cares about what they do so much that it is, it is very hopeful. Yeah, totally. Well, I've learned so much about the Nautilus. I mean, I don't know, before we talked about the Ammonite, I didn't even really know that Nautiluses existed. So, but there's a lot, there's a lot of information about them. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw an actual Nautilus, like I was kind of aware of their existence. And then I saw them at the aquarium in Barcelona because apparently when I'm in Barcelona, I choose to go to the aquarium of all things. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, uh, and it was the first time I'd seen Nautilus like in person and they were so weird like to to actually look at them and watch how they move and they're just like hovering there in the water just like these alien beings with really big eyes and just like all these tentacles they're fascinating to look at so yeah go go do yourself a favor and watch a youtube video about nautilus because there's a lot of good ones out there they're not really doing much but they're interesting to look at (laughs) well thank you so much olivia and thanks everyone for listening please If you're a new listener, leave us a rating and review. We'd really, really appreciate it. And of course, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to stay up to date and also take fun quizzes and vote in polls to help decide what animals we cover, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Blathers. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.